Yeah. What's up, Flatirons? How are we? You're good. I'm fired up today, so buckle up. Hey, there's some exciting stuff going on right now. I want to say hi to everybody at the West Campus. We are synced up with them live right now. We're doing a, a soft launch up there. There's several hundred people in the room right now worshiping with us. So on the count of three, I want you guys to all say, what up, West? Okay, so here we go. One, two, three. What up, West? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's an exciting time in the life of our church. And so we're just kind of pushing some systems this weekend and figuring all that stuff out. So really, really excited about that going on. Hey, uh, I was teaching at this conference recently and uh, they had me do a couple big sessions kind of like this. And then they had me do this breakout session with students, uh, college age students who are interested in going into ministry. And it was a Q&A session. So they got to ask me questions and I tried my best to answer some of those questions and things like that. And this dude in the room raised his hand and basically said this. He said, you know, it's seems that in today's church, in American church, like men are leaving in droves, like men are just not engaged with church, they don't want to go to church and stuff like that. So my question for you, Scott, is do you do anything intentional at your church to try to reach men? And I just started laughing because I thought he was joking at first. And then I realized, no, he's asking a serious question. We're about to launch this series a week after he asked me of, of the series called I Am That Man. And so I got to tell him about what we do around here and why we do it and all the efforts we go to to, to reach men. And as we're in this series, we're going to continue to look at Jesus as the ultimate example of masculinity and we're taking our cues from him on what being a man should be or could be and last week we started looking at this metaphor that Jesus used to describe himself when he said I am the good shepherd and one of the takeaways from that last week was simply this uh, good shepherds are both tough and tender right uh, good shepherds are they are they take care of the sheep and they shoot the wolves they're tender with sheep but they are tough on wolves. And last week we looked at, okay, so if we have this, this enemy and we're called to fight and we gotta, we gotta engage this enemy, what weapons do we have at our disposal? What, what weapons do we fight with and what does that fight look like? How do we actually be tough on the enemy? And this week what I wanna do is I wanna flip the coin and look at the other side of it and I wanna look at what does it look like to be tender with the sheep. And again, we're going to take our cues from Jesus. So look back at some of those verses that, that Jesus uh, gave us last week in John chapter 10 and just kind of look at the way that Jesus as the good shepherd treats the sheep. Look at this, verse 3. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So the first observation is this, a good shepherd when he goes into the sheep pen does not beat the sheep. He doesn't, he doesn't whip them. He doesn't yell and scream at them. He doesn't verbally abuse them. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He simply calls out to them and the sheep, not only do they recognize his voice, but even more than that, they trust him enough to follow him as he leads them out because they trust his intentions. Remember this verse from last week and the week before, verse 10? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly because I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So if you want to know the intentions of Jesus as a good shepherd towards us, he wants us to have this full, abundant kind of life. That's what he wants, so much so that he's willing to even lay down his life for our good. So, so this week we're going to look at what does it mean if Jesus is tender with the sheep, what does it mean for us to be tender towards those we've given the, been given the responsibility of looking after? And that word tender, I don't know what you think of when you hear it. What I think of is gentle. 
And that's actually not really what tender means. The root word of tender is the word tend. And tend actually means to give attention and care to, to watch over and protect. So think about tending bar, okay? Somebody leaves you to tend the bar, you take care of the needs of the bar. Think of tending a garden. You take care of the needs of that garden. Uh, Think of tending sheep. You take care of the sheep. And sometimes tending may require you to be firm. But if that's the case... It's with the purpose of redemption. In other words, this is for the good of whatever you're tending. See, this idea of God being a shepherd is something that's all over the Bible. Most famously, it's found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 23. If you've been to church a couple times in your life, you've probably heard at least bits and pieces of the 23rd Psalm. And the guy who wrote it was named David, and he was, he was a king later in his life, but early in his life, he was a shepherd. And so he writes down this, this psalm reflecting on the way God the Father shepherds us. And there's a lot to be taken from it. So check this out with me, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, we could spend probably six months worth of a series just unpacking that beautiful passage, but if I had to sum up the 23rd Psalm and sum up the way that God the Father shepherds us, I would say at least these three things. He leads us, he protects us, and he provides for us. He leads us, protects us, and provides for us. He leads. In other words, there's a place that he's trying to take us. See, shepherding, this is important to remember, shepherding is directional. He leads us and he protects us. See, the strength of the shepherd is comforting to the sheep. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me because the staff was used to draw sheep back from danger if they're about to walk off a cliff. A rod was, was used to tap them on the head to go, don't walk over there, don't go over there, go over here. But the strength of the shepherd, don't miss it, is a terror to the enemy. The strength of the shepherd is comforting to the sheep under his care. It's a terror to the enemy. So God the Father, as he shepherds us, he protects us. The shepherd also provides. See, what the sheep need is ultimately found in the shepherd. It's it's interesting if you kind of study the concept of love in the Bible. The Bible doesn't primarily teach about love in the sense of emotion and feeling. I mean, that's present. That's there. It's not void of that. But primarily the way the Bible describes love is with those two words, to provide and protect. Provide and protect. That's what love looks like. That's why, that's why that phrase song was so appropriate. It's not what I say. It's what I do. So listen to what I do. That's what love is. So men, we are called the shepherd in the same way that God the Father, God the Son uh, shepherds us. And who are we called the shepherd then becomes the question. And that can become very all-encompassing up to people who work for you or even just people who look to you as their leader or look to you for for influence. You are shepherding those people. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the two primary groups of people that we as men, God the Father entrusts to us to shepherd. And that would be our wives and our children. Like I said last week, we are, we are often deceived into being tough on those we are called to be tender with. We just naturally are hard on those that we love the most, are we not? 
I'll give you an example. I coach Eli's third grade basketball team. And if you were to take a poll of all my players and say, who is Coach Scott the toughest on? They would all go, oh, Eli, (laughs) by far. He does more burpees. He runs more sprints. He gets in trouble more quickly. He gets yelled at more than the rest of us. Coach Scott's tough on all of us. He's toughest on Eli. We are naturally toughest on those we love the most. So the question becomes, what does it look like for a man to be tender with his wife and with his children? Before we dive in, I want to give a few disclaimers to some people. We're pretty deep into this series now, and a lot of you have been asking really, really good questions. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to give some disclaimers to some people who might be tempted into thinking this doesn't apply to them today. You may be thinking this isn't really for me. The first group might be men who aren't married yet. You guys, man, take notes more than anybody else. See, don't expect to become that man after you get married Become that man so that you can become marriage material. So take the notes, go get the CD, listen to it on the way home and memorize it, all right? There's a bunch of single ladies applauding that right now. (laughs) So let me talk to single moms. Those of you who know my story, you know I have a soft spot in my heart for single moms. I I grew up in a house with just me and my, my mom. And I know this series has been really hard on some of you and you've got a lot of questions and a lot of you weren't here a year ago when we did this series called Jack and Jill that was addressed specifically to women. And there was a weekend in there where um, my mom and I sat down and I interviewed her about what it's like being a single mom and she had a lot of great info in there. And so it was called uh, Just Jill. Go online, grab that, listen to it, watch it. Uh, that's a great resource to you. The other great resource to you is our kids ministry and our student ministries. If you're a single mom and, and you are not getting your kids involved in our kids ministry and our student ministries, you are missing out on a huge thing that God has for your children because there are some godly men in those places that can't be a father to your kids, but they can be a great, great answer to prayer in your life. And I, I would point you to this as well. God promises to be a father to the fatherless. He does. He promises that. He can and will fill the void for your children if you will seek him. And if you will seek his strength, at the same time, continue to look for that man and don't settle for anything less. Let me talk to older men in the room who may think that your job as a parent is done. It's never done. It's never done. And you may feel like you forfeited it or you feel like you messed it up or you can't do anything to change the past. The reality is you cannot do anything to change the past, but you don't have to live the same as as your future. And so keep being faithful with what you have. All we're all called to is to do the next right thing. And so stay engaged in the life of your children as far as it depends on you. So with all that said, let, let's dive in. Let's look first at our wives. You see, the most, the most distinctive way that Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, the way he defines that is his willingness to lay down his life for the sheep. And then it's interesting, if you look at the most famous teaching on marriage in the Bible that we've walked through a bunch of times in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's talking to husbands when he says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sounds a lot like the good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for the sheep, doesn't it? So how did Jesus ultimately demonstrate his love for the church? Not by emotion, not by feeling, but by setting aside his comfort, his rights, his preferences, his very life for the church by dying on the cross for us. So gentlemen, guys in the room who are married, how do we play our part? We die. (laughs) How about that for a high bar? (laughs) Right? So what is it right now? 
that you need to die to because it's not good for her. You're putting it ahead of her. And there are a million dumb things that we put ahead of our wives. And every time I talk about them, I get emailed by all the guys who are trying to justify that activity, taking precedence over their wife. It doesn't matter what I say. I can say softball. I can say golf. I can say video games. It doesn't matter. Then I get all the emails from everybody. But don't miss it. I'm not saying softball is, is wrong. I'm saying it's a little bit lame. I mean, listen, <laughs> not hard, okay? <laughs> But, okay, play softball, that's fine. But if you put it ahead of your wife, that's dumb, okay? That's dumb, that's lame, okay? Now there's a million things that we do that with, but there's also some really good things that we put ahead of our wives that we fall into this trap of. And I wanna give you probably the biggest one that maybe a lot of us haven't even thought of. And if you, you gotta listen to me carefully on this one, okay? Because you're gonna think I'm contradicting myself later, but I'm not. Here's what's really important to remember today, okay? Gentlemen, Follow Jesus, love your wife, and raise your kids in that order. In that order. We talk about the first one all the time. Don't put anybody in the role of God in your life. Don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing becomes a very destructive thing. If you put that on somebody, you'll destroy them and your relationship with them. We talk about that all the time. But if you go further down the line, the order is still really important, right? The order is still really important that you put your wife ahead of your children. And to be really honest with you, for me, that's a challenge based on sheer quantity, right? And, and demand and level of neediness. I have four children. I have one wife. It's a struggle for me. But I, everything I'm giving you today, I'm in the middle of processing. I have not learned this. I'm learning this. So just know that, all right? But I have to ask myself some really hard questions. I'm asking you guys hard questions too. So I have to ask myself things like, why is it that I would never neglect coaching my third grade basketball team because my son plays on it? I would never miss a practice. I would never miss a game. None of that because Eli plays on it. But yet I could look up and a month has gone by and I haven't taken my wife on a date. How's that? Why does that work that way? I took my wife on a date last night, all right? And so there are flat irons people everywhere, and they're like, good job, Scott. I'm like, give me some space. I'm trying to work my game, all right? <laughs> That's how I ended up with the four kids to begin with. But much like it's better for my wife, it's better for Allie if I put Jesus before her, it's also better for my kids if I put Allie before them. It is. because I don't know what your goal is in your marriage. Let me tell you mine. After my kids are grown and gone, I still want to be married to her. I still want to look at her and know who she is and love her. And I want her to look back at me and know who I am and love me. Because I've seen it happen a million times. People get divorced after 20, 30, 40 years of marriage. You go, what happened? And here's what happened. They woke up and had to look at each other one day because the kids were gone and they didn't know who they were looking at. Because the gods that they worshipped moved out the house. They're children. And children make terrible gods. So... What does that look like? What does that really look like to shepherd? You got a plan now to be married that long and all that kind of stuff. So what does that look like? And it's probably a million more things than what I'm going to give you today, but I know it's at least these three things. It starts with leadership. When I say leadership, I mean servant leadership. Again, we got to follow Jesus' lead on this. The Bible is clear, and we've talked about it at length over the years, that husbands are called and commanded to provide the leadership of their home, their wives, and their children. And I, I've already gotten a couple of them this weekend. I always, always get guys who are like, man, this, this is too heavy. This is too much. This responsibility thing, I don't like it. I'm like, uh, okay, sorry. That doesn't change the fact that it exists. 
That's what husbands are called to. But that leadership piece is defined by the way Jesus leads, which is that of being a servant leader. So catch this. Servanthood doesn't nullify leadership. It defines it. It it defines it. The night before Jesus was crucified, right? So he gathers all of his disciples in this upper room. There's not many of them left. They're going to have this famous Last Supper thing. But before that even begins, what's he do? He gets a towel and he gets a basin and he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts to wash their dirty, disgusting, filthy feet. He does what slaves and servants did. And if you were able to press pause on that story in the midst of it and interject and go, okay, guys, quick poll. Everybody on the count of three, point to the leader of this group because we're not sure who it is. One, two, three. Where do all the fingers point? To the man who's on the ground washing their feet, doing the work of a servant, which is the work of a leader. Leadership is servanthood. Leadership is also directional. See, shepherds lead in a direction. They don't aimlessly wander. If you aimlessly wander, sheep die. Husbands, I've never met a wife who didn't want this from their husband. I've never met a wife who didn't want their husband to have a vision for them. So the question becomes, where are you taking her? What's your vision for her? And man, last night at dinner, Allie goes, so what's your vision for me? I'm like, hey, 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 I'm asking them. You back off for a second, all right? No, it's a great, it's a great question. The harder question is this, are you even worth following? Are you worth following? What, what are your intentions toward her? Because if we take our cues from Jesus, his intentions for us are that we have life and that we have it to the full, that we have it abundantly, that we find ultimate fulfillment. So our same goal, that same goal should be for our wives as husbands, right? So where, we're all, where will our wives find ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction? Where will they find ultimate fulfillment? Where will they find that? Not in us. We can't handle that, Right? We can't deliver that. Where will they find it? In Jesus. So here's my vision for my wife and everything I do to point her and lead her towards Christ. To lead her towards Jesus. The question becomes, how are you doing that? How are you taking the initiative in that? Because a leader, by definition, goes first. Goes first. That word initiative is really, really key. So let me ask some hard, invasive questions. Who initiates going to church? I love the fact that we have just tons of men in this church I love it can I give you one thing and you may, this may be nitpicky it's one thing that kind of gets under uh, you're not going to clap here in a second one thing that kind of gets under my <laughs> under my skin you know our, one of our um, smallest attendance days weekends around here you know what it is it's a holiday Father's Day one of the highest ones Mother's Day why is that a bunch of fathers would rather go play golf than go to church with their families and you can play golf after church you can. So who goes first with that? And who initiates things like prayer? Who initiates giving and serving and generosity? Who initiates reading the Bible in your home? See, it's leadership. It's going first. It's also protection. Again, I never met a wife who didn't want this from her husband. This has nothing to do with competence or ability. You may be married to the most dangerous woman in the world. You may be married to Ronda Rousey, the champ of the UFC. I don't care who you're married to. There's not a woman who wants their husband to hide behind them in a fight. I've never met that person, okay? You, you go first and get your tail kicked and then she cleans up the mess. That's fine, but you have to go first. So, so at night when you catch the elbow in the ribs and you were sleeping so well, and then you hear this phrase, I heard a noise. Your response cannot be, it's your turn to go check it out. 
It's 50-50 marriage, babe. This is America. <laughs> Lame. Can't be that. It cannot be that. You, you go first. Listen, I, I have, my wife is strong and she is capable. She can probably deadlift more than most of the dudes in this room. But if you break into my house, you will go through me first. That's the way it works. It's more than just physical protection. It's way beyond that. It's emotional, spiritual, mental protection. It means you're responsible for what is brought into your home and how it affects your wife's heart. It means guarding your wife's heart. I I find myself having to defend my wife from my children all the time. All the time I have to go, whoa, time out. You, here, look in my eyes. You don't talk to mama that way or there'll be hell to pay with me. Not again, go apologize, go do that. So we have to protect even from our children sometimes. I find myself having to defend my wife against the pressure she feels to be super mom, super wife, or one more layer for my wife, pastor wife. And here's the thing, the tragic thing about that is I'm probably tougher on her than I'm on any other human being on the planet when I should be most tender with her. It's leadership, it's protection, it's also provision. This is more than just financially, but it includes that. It's the Bible that says this. You can take it up with the Bible. Take it up with God. The Bible says it this way. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Remember, the essence of manhood is responsibility. I don't care if you don't like that. It is what it is. So to just shirk that, to just give it up, to just go, I don't like that, it's too much, I don't want to walk with it, I don't want to hold it, I don't want to handle it, is an indicator that a man doesn't understand or embrace Jesus at all. That's a man who doesn't understand what Jesus has provided for them. You cannot line up, I love Jesus, I serve Jesus, and I follow Jesus, and I do not and will not provide for my family. You cannot put the two things together. See, it's about providing way more than just finances or a home or something like that. It's, a home is more than an apartment, a house, a condo, or whatever. A home is a place that your wife longs to be in, next to you, with you. You have to provide that for your wife. You have to provide for your wife in so many ways. That includes sexually, which means pursuing her, serving her, and not providing for yourself by yourself with pornography. How about that? Awkward moment number four of the weekend. Here's something I'm realizing. I think men are kind of like thermostats in our home. I can become cold and walled off, and when I do that, the whole house kind of follows that. If I'm angry and I'm tirading around and I'm hot under the collar, the whole house kind of reaches that boiling point. How can I make my house a warm place to be, a place my wife wants to be, yearns to be? See, all this, all this, and probably a lot more is what being tender with your wife or tending to your wife looks like. How about that for overwhelming? How about that for drinking from a fire hydrant? How about that for feeling impossible? How about that for feeling too heavy? It's almost like we need a really big God, isn't it? The kind of God who runs armies of angels on our side, helping us, strengthening us, and with us. The kind of God who commands legions of warriors. We need a God like that, do we not? See, don't give me the whole like, you know what, I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't really identify with this whole thing. That's a bunch of crap. Here's why. Because if you love someone, by definition, you'll fight for them. If you won't fight for them, you don't love them. So, if you love, you will fight for your wife. 
See, don't mistake all this. This is not about being a macho guy and beating your chest and all that kind of stuff. If you think that's what this is about, you're not listening. This is about serving and providing and leading and protecting. It's about going first. It's about, as one guy told me last week in the lobby, it's about doing the right thing whether somebody's looking or not. That's called integrity. So all of that and a lot more is what it looks like to tend to your wife. And the second group of people that God's entrusted to us men as shepherds to be like Jesus to is our children, to tend to them, to be tender with them. And our children need the same three things from us as fathers. They need leadership and protection and provision. It's interesting. The Bible has a lot to say to fathers. You almost get the feeling that God is of the opinion that fatherhood is a high-risk, high-reward endeavor. Because it is. I would go so far as to say this. There's no other human relationship with higher potential for bad than fatherhood gone wrong. There's no other human relationship with higher potential for good than fatherhood gone right. I I would even push further that of the major societal issues that we have, the big ones, they don't get diminished if our fatherhood problem gets cured. They go away. It's that simple. Fatherhood is that important. It's that impactful. And we could spend, again, years tracing the way the Bible teaches about fatherhood. What I want to do this morning, I just want to give you two verses that have been shaping the way that I view fatherhood lately. Again, this is all very raw. This is like current with me. One's a pretty obscure passage. It goes like this. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The Apostle Paul wrote that to a group of Christians in a town called Thessalonica where he had hung out for a little while with this guy named Silas. And all he's doing is making a comparison. He's saying, while we were there, we treated you this way. We dealt with you this way. And by the way, he's explicitly saying when he makes the comparison, this is the way a good father deals with their children. He gives us three important words. He says, fathers exhort, encourage, and charge their children, to walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, to live in a certain way that demonstrates who God is and what he's done. That word exhort is a really interesting one. It means to come alongside of while calling to a task. So to come right up against while saying, this is where you're going. That's the mountain we're climbing. That's the hill we're going to conquer. That's that's the task at hand. It's a really interesting word because it's at its root, it's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God himself comes alongside of us. The Bible actually teaches God himself indwells us as we're following Jesus. In other words, God has not left us. He's not abandoned us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to come alongside of us as our counselor and to indwell us as he calls us to this task. In other words, the first role of a father is to come alongside their children, which means as a father, you got to be there. You got to provide them with your presence. Provide your children with your presence. I hear a lot of great stories out there. I also hear a lot of horrible stories out there. A while back, I had a, a couple girls come up to me, their sisters, and they were talking to me about how they, they really have had to have each other's back over the years and kind of fill in the void in their life for one another and look out for one another. And I was I was kind of wondering, like, maybe, maybe their father wasn't in the picture. Maybe he had left. Maybe he had passed away, something like that. And they said, oh, no. He's, he's there, he's in the house, and we ask him all the time. We beg and we plead him to be a part of our lives. We go, we invite him to participate in our lives. We want him to engage in our lives, and the response we get back is anger. 
He says, I, I provide for you, that should be enough. And the way they finished telling the story just broke me, broke my heart. This is their words, not mine. Went back, said this, and then he just goes on and plays video games with the rest of his night. And I, I kind of smiled through that and like tried to offer some encouragement, but inside I was thinking, you got to be freaking kidding me. These girls are in their 20s probably. How does that make their father? I'm going, you got to be kidding me. You're in your 40s, your 50s, and you have a gift of God standing in front of you. Your two beautiful daughters going, please be a part of my life. Please engage in my life. And you want to go off and play with some fantasy land? You've got to be kidding me. Don't make this about video games. I don't want that email anymore, all right? Fill in anything that you would put ahead of your daughters, that you would put ahead of your sons, that you would put ahead of your, your wife, that if you really were to objectively stand back and go, that's taking precedence over them, and you would look at it and go, if I'm honest, that's foolish. That's what I'm talking about. See, at the end of the day, it will not matter. It will not matter how good you were at World of Warcraft or how many Super Bowls you won on Madden 35. What will matter is what you did with the time you had with the wife and the children that God, the creator of the universe, gave you for a while and trusted you with. And God will hold you accountable to that. Your presence matters. And there's no disclaimer on that. There's no disclaimer that says, you know what, only if you have custody. There's no disclaimer that says, only if you have the time. No, 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 no. As fathers, you are called to be as present as you physically and possibly can, to do the best you can with what you've got. Those of you who know me know this is my story. I never once in my whole life have lived in the same house with my dad, never. He did the best he could with what he had. Your job is to fight. The results are up to God, but you've got to be there you got to come alongside. A father's role is not to send down orders from above. A father's job is to come alongside and help his children reach and achieve and accomplish things that they can only accomplish with you beside them. Think about that for a second. Who does that sound like? Sounds like God. It's exactly what God has done for us. God tells us to do things, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, that are impossible for us to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's called impossible. Love, serve, honor, protect, provide, be faithful. All of that would be an absolutely crushing burden if he didn't promise to bear it. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. What else do you think he's not willing to bear? He went to a cross. What else do you think he won't carry for us? He promises that he will be with us and he will help us in our time of need. So as fathers, why would it be any different for us with our kids? We gotta be there, we gotta be present, we gotta come alongside and we gotta help. As long as I'm making everybody mad, I might as well just push further. I, um, I think homework's dumb for the most part, you know? And it's, not, it's mostly not kids who are clapping right now, it's parents who have to help with it, okay? And I, some of it, I'm, I guess it's great, but I, what irks me is when my kid, like when my, when my daughter comes home and she's in, she's in fourth grade and they, they give her like a word search for homework. I'm like, this is not productive. This is busy work. This is a waste of time, all right? Now, I, I, listen, I can remember one time in my whole life that my mom ever helped me with homework and it went badly. It went really, really badly. We never tried it again. So that's my background. So when my kids come to me and say, I need help with homework, I'm really kind of like, I did my time. <laughs> Have fun, you know? 
But every now and then they ask, and I, you know, I try my best to help and stuff, except if it's with math, because um, I don't know if you, I'm terrible at math, number one. Have you noticed that they don't do math right anymore? <laughs> Why do we have to draw all these pictures? <laughs> Three times seven, 21. Write a two, write a one. No, dad, I have to show my work with a picture and a stick drawing and a do this and a do that. What? Just write the, write the answer. I won't get full credit if I just write the right answer. What? You won't get full credit for getting the right answer. It's like, I just have to stop. I just have to walk away from it, you know? But if they need my help with something as simple as homework, they need me to come alongside them in that. How much more do they need me to come alongside them and how to deal with like conflict and how do you interact with women and men and what's honor and respect and obedience and faith and life? How does that all work, right? And guess what? You know what our kids are gonna do because they're just like us? They're going to screw it up. They're going to screw it up. They're going to mess it up. They're going to fail. They're going to fall flat on their face. And in that moment, you know what they need? Here's the next word. They need a father who will encourage them. They don't need a father who will stand over them and condemn them. They don't need a father who will call them names. That word encourage literally means to comfort and soothe. When they fall on their face and when they mess up, they need a father who, like Jesus has done for us, gives them grace and mercy in their time of need who will encourage them to get up and forget what's behind and to carry on. And as they get back in the race, those children need a father who will charge them. The word charge is a cool one as well. It means to speak well of. It means to applaud. It means to testify. So the picture is this. You've, you've come alongside them. You've called them to a task that's insurmountable apart from your presence. You've given them the freedom to fail, and at times they have, but you've encouraged them, you've picked them up, you've dusted them off, and you've set them back on the course, and now they're running the race, and now you are their biggest cheerleader. You know what all that is? You sum it all up, that's tender. To give attention and care to, to watch over and protect. That's what it is. Here's the other scripture that's, really been shaping my view of fatherhood lately. Back before Bo was born, he's, he's seven months old now. Time, is, time moves faster the more kids you have. It's amazing, and I can't believe he's that old. And I'm, I'm sitting there before he's born, a few weeks before he's born. I'm just reflecting on the fact that I'm about to be a, a dad for the fourth, fourth time. That, that's a little weighty if you start to think about it. And I don't know how you guys in the room that are parents, I don't know how you think about your parenting. I, the way that I've spent most of my life thinking about my parenting is through the lens of what I don't want my children to do who I don't want them to become and what I don't want them to experience. In other words, I've lived my parenting life on the defense, much like I talked about last week, but not really on the offense. And as I was reflecting on that, I came across this article that was entitled uh, Raising Dangerous Kids. I thought that's intriguing. I should read that. And the, the author was just talking about this passage I'd read a thousand times in Psalm 127, but I'd never really thought about much. And this is the way it goes. Look at this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So here's the picture the author's painting. In ancient Israel, as in many other cultures, often business went down at the city gate. And so the picture that's being painted here is of a man who had a lot of kids while he was young and now he's older and when he goes to do business to confront his enemy or just to make a deal at the city gate, guess who's standing behind him? All these grown men, his children, who are standing behind them, they're with him, 
They're behind him. They're beside him. They're aligned with their father's will. And so who's going to take advantage of that guy? Who's going to try to cheat that guy? Who's going to try to rob that guy? Who's going to try to steal from that guy? No one, because he's like a warrior with arrows in his hand. That's the picture that's being painted. And I I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know what? That's got to be my next tattoo. And so that's what I did. I I got this tattoo. And every arrow has one of my kids names on it and the kids love it it's a great they come up to me sit on my lap and go daddy show me my arrow and I'll I'll show them and then they'll get in arguments over whose arrow is the most lethal and (laughs) they all have reasons for it and things like that but it's a great reminder for them and it's a great reminder for me that this is the way to parent your kids view them that way as arrows at the hand of a warrior you know one of my favorite things that I get to see week in and week out in the lobby I've seen it all weekend my not one of my favorite thing to see in the lobby men carrying their children it's my favorite thing I love to see men like holding their kids kids on their shoulders you know kids crawling all over them dealing with those stupid car seats that weigh 5,000 pounds even though the the baby weighs seven like I don't understand how that works it rubs a raw spot on your leg I don't like to see men with the front carriers that's kind of emasculating but I'm just joking I'm I'm joking okay chill I love to see that I love to see guys carrying their children every time I see it every time I see it out in the lobby I just think this that's arrows in the hands of a warrior arrows in the hands of a warrior so I think, I think that's a whole different way of viewing your children. I think that's a different way of raising your children. Children aimed in a direction for a purpose with a goal of sending them out and hitting their mark. And I don't, be honestly, I don't know much about shooting arrows. I know this will shock you, but Jim is now taking up bow hunting, <laughs> of course. And so he'll have a lot more to say about this. I'm sure my last experience was in like fourth grade. They took us on a field trip to some... 4-H camp and I almost killed the instructor when I fired the arrow and so I haven't done it since but I do know this I know that arrows don't get taken out of the quiver and I know arrows don't get aimed on their own they have to be dealt with intentionally so a couple questions dads what are you intentionally aiming your kids at what's your plan what's the target Because here's the deal, if you do this haphazardly, if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a target, they're still dangerous. But if you have no idea where where you're aiming, a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. So here's what I'm learning. The, The only target that matters is Jesus. The only one. At the end of the day, I really don't care what their profession ends up being, whether they're rich, poor, blue collar, or white collar. I just want my children to follow Jesus. So everything I, ha- I do with them has to be aimed in that direction. It's why Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. See, I've spent way too much time worrying about what I don't want them to become, but not enough time dreaming and planning and putting into practice, aiming them at Jesus. So I'm changing that. I uh, told you last week, I think one of the biggest tragedies of our culture is that we don't have rites of passage for our children. And I'm changing that for my kids as far as it depends on me. They're going to have rites of passage. So when they turn 13, they get to do something with me. 
And it's a work in progress. I'm still developing it, but I wrote down the objective several months ago, and I'm sharing it with you here today. The objective is this, to create an experience that requires both my participation, sponsorship, and involvement, but will be their accomplishment. It needs to be something that fits their unique personality and requires them to do something difficult. This will happen at or around their 13th birthday. During the training and preparation, it will create space and time to both celebrate where they've been and talk about where they're going. The experience should flow with grace and truth both of those things so for the older ones it's a little more developed so, so for Landry 13's in a few like three years God help me all right <laughs> but I've shared this with them they know this is the plan and so they've started developing it's they've got to help create this experience and so for Landry she has this adventurous spirit I don't know how else to put it she just has an adventurous spirit and so she wants to go to Uganda with me she wants to go to the Musana children's home and so she's saving up money for that right now for Eli he, he's planning to hunt a bear with a knife. <laughs> I, however, am bringing a gun, a big one, a big one. Now, he's legit, and if, he, if that's the course he wants to go down, I guess we're hunting a bear for Jesus, all right? With, with Silas, he's four. I'm not so sure about him. If he didn't look exactly like me, I would go, where did you come from? Because he's different than the rest, man. I don't understand him. His brain works differently. He likes to take things apart and put things back together. If I take something apart, it's not going back together. <laughs> It's not happening, but I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to build something, and if so, that's going to be hard on me, but maybe that's what we're going to have to do is build something together. With Bo, he's seven months old. He really likes to eat, you know? <laughs> he's, eating, he's eating well. Maybe we'll do a hot dog eating contest. I don't know. <laughs> the key with all of these things, though, is it has to point them to Jesus in the preparation, in the planning, and in the execution, and here's why. Because moments matter. Moments matter. We know this because moments matter mark us for good or for bad or for both do they not I want to create moments that mark my children for Jesus I want them to know who and what is worth fighting for I want them to know how to fight and I want them to tackle dangerous things because they worship a dangerous God who will come alongside of them and it may not be until years later that they put it together that's fine I am not in charge of how those arrows fly after I let them go you need to know that parents all we're in charge of is where we aimed them and what direction they were heading when we let them go. The one who's in charge of where they go and how they fly, oh, they're in good hands because he's the God of the angel armies. My name's Cameron Cruz. I go by the name Crucifix. I'm a uh, follower of Christ, a husband, a father, and a recording artist in that order. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, spent about the first 12 years of my life in Atlanta. And then... I remember one night at church, a missionary came in and showed some slides from Congo, and uh, my dad just felt it heavy on him. You know, you need to go to Africa. And my mom's sitting on the other side of the church, and she feels that pull. So when I was 12 years old, we moved to, uh, to Congo. I remember one night in Congo, um, I was outside playing in the front yard, and uh, we started hearing gunshots. And then the, the pistol fire turns to, to AK fire, and it starts to get a little bit heavier and heavier. Sun starts to set, and my dad comes out, and he's like, you guys need to go ahead and just come in. And so uh, the gunshots started getting closer, and the, uh, the screaming started getting closer. I remember my dad, he got up from the hallway, and he ran into the bathroom. There was a psalm that sat over our toilet, and I'd never read it. He, he pulled it down off the walls, framed, and he brings it in, and he sits down, and he reads the words of the psalm. 
He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord that he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. And surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth will be your shield and your buckler. And you shall not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. The last part of the psalm that really, really stood out to me the most that we prayed and prayed the hardest was, you know, God, if, if we have nothing else to hold on to, this is all that we got, then God, somehow let your angels take charge over us, take, take charge over my dad, take charge over my, my mother and my sisters. And you could hear the, the voices of the soldiers as they started coming down our street. My dad looks at me and he hands me a machete. And he says, when the soldiers come in, let them take whatever they want. But if, if they try to touch your mom or your sisters, and he looks me in the eye and he says, I want you to know that you're going to die. He said, but I want you to kill as many of them as you can before you die to keep your mom and sisters from being raped. I'm 12 years old, looking through this hallway at the front door, the voices of the soldiers at the front gate, and then everything was silent. It moved on. The next day we got up, we, we crossed the border to Rwanda until everything died down. We come back, and a lady selling vegetables comes up to our gate, and she looks at my mom and she says, do you want to know why the soldiers didn't hit your house that night? The lady said, you know, I sell vegetables on the street. The soldiers grabbed me. They said, you know who has money. They got to our house, and she said, there's some Americans that live here. The soldiers started to come through our gate. They somehow were terrified. They said they saw tall men standing around our house. After that night in Congo, we moved across the border to Rwanda, which at the time was more politically stable. And... uh we were in Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda, when the Rwandan genocide broke out. We drove uh, from Kigali through a series of back roads uh, to the neighboring country of Burundi, and we were able to meet up with uh, the, the U.S. Embassy there. They fed us rations, put us on a, uh, a C-130, and flew us to Nairobi, Kenya. So we leave Kenya in 1996 and move back to Atlanta. And we were involved in a Baptist church. I, I had no, I didn't fit in there. I had no connection with anybody there. I started hanging out with a couple kids on the bus that were gang members. And they could relate. For the first time, I felt like, hey, I fit in, you know? Like, I, I feel like I have some type of purpose. I feel like I have some type of meaning. I, I think I found who I am. Because they'd seen death. They'd seen conflict. They'd seen some of the same things you had seen. Exactly. It was just, it started a downward spiral that just, just went out of control. I started selling guns uh, at school and started selling drugs at school. I was homeless for about close to two years, living in crack houses uh, in Atlanta. My girlfriend at the time, she, she didn't come from a, a, a rough background like that. 
and she was homeless with me. She was pregnant, slept out on the concrete in 32 degrees. When I saw her shaking all night, that was when it hit me. It's time to man up. I was like, I got to get it together. That getting together process was like a seven-year process. <laughs> um, now I got a beautiful family, man. The greatest gift that, that God has given me in this life, man. And it's a constant reminder of responsibility, you know? Being able to be a father has given me such a different perspective on being a Christian. Because now I'm able to look at my kids and understand what unconditional love means to know what it's like to look that child in the eye and say, I would die for you. I would fight for you, regardless whether you want me to or not. My oldest daughter is 13 years old, and uh, man, she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. I love her to death. My daughter had her phone, and uh, you know she had some boys texting her. And so I got the phone one day, and I was reading through some of the text messages, and uh, this little boy asked for some nude pics. And I was proud of my daughter because she was like, look, I don't do that. Next morning, he writes back, hey, babe, hey, babe, hey, babe. So I get the phone. Hey, babe, you want to see some pics? And he's like, yeah. So I send him some pics. Yeah, this particular pic was one that we shot uh, for an album. I thought it would be appropriate. I told him, I said, why don't you take a second to just let that picture sink in? <laughs> I, in and of myself, do not have the strength to be the father, to be the husband, to be the Christian, you know, that I need to be. But one thing I do know is that the God of the angel armies that stood outside my house that night when I was clutching a machete, looking death in the face, that the God who can sovereignly protect will continue to do so. That that God who can shepherd you through the valley of the shadow of death in its realest form can shepherd you through the valley of temptation in your home. He can shepherd you through the valley of parenthood, through the valley of being a husband and, or a wife, the valley of marriage. I hold on to the fact that trials are going to come. But you know what, man? I know who goes before me. Now you, now you know why I'm losing my voice. It's all because of that song right there. And I don't know what it is that you... Uh, think is too big, too far gone, insurmountable, or just beyond hope or beyond repair. All I know is what you need to know is we worship the God of the angel armies. That's all. So let's, uh, let's talk to him right now. God, Father, God of the angel armies, God of the universe, the one who spoke all this into existence and knitted us together in our mother's womb. God, you, you have a purpose and a plan for us. You want good for us. God, sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we can't see that. But God, that's only when we take our eyes off of you and forget who you are and what you've done. You proved your love to us. You proved your commitment to us when you sent your one and only son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So in the strength, in the strength of your son Jesus who carried that cross up a hill and faced death and then conquered it when he came busting out of that grave three days later, Help us, go with us now to face whatever it is you would have us face. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen. Hey, great weekend. There's gonna be buckets in the back, prayer team people up here later. Love you, bye.